We are in continuing on in our series through the book of Revelation. And I've gotten a lot of good feedback from you people, you people, from some of you folks saying uh, that, that this has been helpful, that the way we're going through it is providing some understanding that maybe wasn't there before. It's making the book a little less scary, a little less intimidating. But to be fair, we haven't gotten to the super weird stuff yet. So, um, you know, stay with me. There's still a chance for us to lose the thread. Um, but I want to start with a story as we turn our attention toward the last book of the Bible. There were two retired ministers one Sunday morning, and they were heading to a worship service together. One, one of the ministers looked at the, the bulletin for the week and saw that the text for the morning was going to be from Revelation chapter 4. And he said, ooh, Revelation 4, my second favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Which then, of course, prompted the other minister to say, oh, it's your second favorite chapter. What's your first favorite chapter? And the first minister said, well, Revelation 5, of course. Two favorite chapters in the whole Bible were Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. And that's our text for this morning. That's where we're going to be hanging out. And maybe we'll discover why some people say this these two chapters are their favorite. Maybe we'll discover why a lot of commentators and scholars who study the book of Revelation say that if you don't understand Revelation 4 and 5, you won't understand the entire book. It's central. And what happens there kind of provides this foundational core for understanding and knowing what to do with Revelation. So we're going to continue to journey with John. And the vision that he received, remember, revelation means something was revealed to him by God. And this is a message he was told to write down and send to the seven churches who were facing a number of challenge, challenges at the time that this was written. I was thinking today about uh, our screens. Like, there's a screen. We're going to show you stuff. You guys all have screens that you can access. There's screens in our homes, screens in our cars. These are like windows into other parts of the world. They are, they show us what's going on in other places in our planet. They show us what the rich and the famous people and the talented people are up to in their lives. Our screens, if we want them to, can play and then replay the most heated arguments of the day. They show us all the fun and interesting things our, our friends and, and relatives are doing without us. <laughs> Thank you, social media. Um, if we let them, our screens will show us as many shameful and unmentionable things as we choose. Our screens often interest us more than the people who are in the same room with us. Have you noticed that? Our screens are this, this glimpse into another world. And the things they tell us, sometimes they're true, and sometimes they're a distortion of what is true. And I was thinking about that this week, because... Revelation 4 begins with John getting a glimpse into something that he wouldn't have had access to otherwise. It's like he's given this opportunity to look into a screen. And Jesus, the risen Lord, is telling him, I need you to see something. Because there's something going on that you may not know about, but it's, it's important. And it's going to impact the rest of your understanding of how the world is and how the world works. It begins a lot like hearing John look into a screen. Listen to what it says. After this, this is after Jesus' message to the seven churches that we looked at. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet came back and said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Ooh, okay. A screen. A glimpse into something 
very important. And we're going to hear what that glimpse describes. We're going to see that. We're going to experience what John experienced in just a minute. But before we do, I think we need to prepare ourselves a little bit. Because, like I said, Revelation is a certain kind of literature. It uses a certain kind of language. If we don't know what it's trying to do, or if we don't understand how its original audience heard it, we may just get lost. It may just sound like somebody describing their weird dream to us. And we go like, yeah, yeah, okay, well, whatever. What else you got? <laughs> so, first we need to understand that when we see numbers in Revelation, that is significant. Uh, that numbers don't always just mean the amount that they are depicting. And it's interesting because we shouldn't be too surprised by this. We do this in our own world. If you're moving a couch with somebody, you might say, oh man, this couch weighs a ton. Which, I mean, a ton is 2,000 pounds. If the couch actually weighed 2,000 literal pounds, you wouldn't be moving the couch uh, with anybody who could hear you complain about how heavy it was. You're, we know what you're saying, though. It's a heavy couch, right? That's a, a number that we use, but it's not the exact amount. In the same way, you might say, oh, man, I've got a million things I need to do before next Sunday. Again, I know what you're saying. You're busy. You got a lot of stuff on your plate. But literally, there aren't a million seconds between now and a week from now. So you probably don't have a million things to do. Uh, my daughter, Leah, she's came up with this new euphemism, I guess. Uh, last Sunday, she came out of my office, and then she came up to me and she said, Daddy, why do you have 39 guitars in your office? And I thought about that. I said, well, I don't have 39 guitars in my office. I have three guitars in my office, which to her, and maybe to some of you, may seem excessive, <laughs> but there aren't 39 literal guitars. But in her mind, and she uses that phrase at home too, Daddy, you spilled like 39 coffee beans on the floor. Again, I spilled like three. <laughs> but that's her word for a surprising amount. And we get that in Revelation too. Because remember, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And people who would recognize this genre, this style of writing, they would go, oh, okay. So when John's talking about seeing Jesus having seven horns, he's not like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven horns. Okay, good. I need to go and report that. That number is symbolic. When you see the number seven in scripture, you know that that is kind of the number for perfection or completeness. In the last two chapters, we saw the seven churches. We saw seven lamps, uh, seven lampstands, the seven spirits of God. And what we'll hear today, we're going to hear the, the lamb, the risen lamb's horns, has seven horns and seven eyes. That is just a number for perfection. The number 12 is significant too, not just in apocalyptic writings, but throughout scripture. This is like the number for God's chosen people. It's also a number of fullness. You think about the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles that Jesus chose. And in chapters 4 and 5, you're going to see 24 thrones and 24 elders. And those almost certainly represent the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. They're making a reference to this. These are God's people. And I should say now, too, if you see a multiple of any of these numbers, like 12 or 24 or coming up, we're going to see the number 144,000. Uh, if it's a multiple of those numbers, that counts as well. And so the last one on this chart that I have is number 1,000. You're going to see thousands of angels praising the Lamb on the throne. And, you know, it's thousands and ten thousands and thousands upon thousands. Again, it's not John uh, counting and taking attendance of how many angels exactly were there. This is like Leah's number 39. He is saying it was a surprising amount. It was more than I thought. And we need to know that going into it. So numbers are significant, not just in these chapters, but through the rest of Revelation. 
And one more thing before we get to the text, just to prepare us, there's also some Old Testament references. There's imagery in these chapters that first century Christians probably would have recognized. If you were here for my intro lesson to Revelation, you might call this the Ocean's Eleven effect. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that movie. Oh yeah, I remember that quote. They would have recognized this and we might not. One of those things they might have recognized is this description of the throne room of God. In Revelation 4, you're going to hear about these beasts flying around the throne and with wings and eyes, and it just, it's going to seem strange. But if you were in one of these seven churches, you might have thought, oh, you know what? It's like that verse that Hank read for us earlier. It's like Isaiah's description of God in his throne room, of what it looks like when you get a glimpse into the throne of God. Or Ezekiel chapter 1, you get a lot of the same kind of imagery. So that would have resonated. We need to be ready for that. Also, the image you're going to see in chapter 5 is of the lamb holding a scroll. This isn't something new. This is something that when Ezekiel was before the throne of God, God tells the prophet Ezekiel, I want you to take this scroll and I want you to, I want you to eat it. It's going to taste like honey, but then it's going to be bad news for the people of Israel. They might have referenced that and gone, oh, okay, we had a prophet who had a scroll and that represented God's message to God's people. Now, John is acting like in the role of a prophet, and he's talking about what's going to happen when these seals of the scroll are open. We're going to see that a little bit later, but the scroll is significant too. And then the last thing I want to mention before we get into the text is you're going to hear in chapter 5 the name of the Lion of Judah. And you may know this from some of the songs that we sing, but the Lion of Judah, well, that's Jesus, and it's because Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, which was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, but it's interesting in chapter 5 because you're gonna, John's going to hear someone say, look, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, and he's going to turn, and he's not going to see a lion. He's going to see something else, something surprising. I won't ruin the surprise, but you'll see. All right, let's get into the text now that we've equipped ourselves to hear this with apocalyptic ears. This is Revelation chapter 4, the second best chapter in the whole Bible. John said, at once I was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white. They had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne, there were what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. The first of the living creatures was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And here's what they did. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. 
That's Revelation 4. All right, there's a little bit more. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. So basically in this vision, you get a glimpse of God on the throne. God being worship. There are these four created beings that were kind of weird, that would maybe scare you if you saw them in your, your average day. But when you think about it, you have the lion, which is the greatest of all the wild animals. And you have the ox, which is the greatest and the strongest of all the tamed, domesticated animals. And you have the eagle, which is the greatest and the strongest of the birds that fly. And then you have someone that has a face like a human being, the crown jewel of God's creation. This creation that said, I created you all. This is good. This is good. This is good. Human beings? Ooh, that's very good. I did something really good there. It's a picture of all of creation, all of these representatives of God's creation, giving credit where credit is due, and that is to its creator. And another thing you might think about is that a first century listener would think of this scene with a throne in the middle and then these other thrones surrounding it. It's kind of like something they might find in the halls of a Roman government. You might find Caesar at the center of the throne receiving the praise and the honor and the glory with his advisors bowing down and submitting to his authority. That was a common scene, but it's changed here. It's kind of turned on its head. The center of the throne is not Caesar. It's not some earthly governor. The one at the center of the throne is God, the creator, and all of creation is singing God's praises. John is telling us something with this image. And you notice that there's not a lot that's happening here. It's kind of just like, okay, I saw it, and you know they're singing and they're praising. There's this progression that goes like this. There's a throne in heaven, 24 elders, four living creatures. They're singing, worthy is the Lord to receive glory and honor and power, and they fall down and worship him. It's not a very compelling story. It's just kind of like, this is what I saw, and this is what happens. In Revelation 5, you're going to kind of see a replay of these same events, but it's going to be a little bit different. It's like when you watch a movie sequel. You come back and you see some of the same characters, and you get some of the same bits or, or shtick, and you're like, yeah, I recognize that from the first movie. Oh, yeah, this is a little bit different, though. That's kind of what you get in Revelation 5. You're going to see the same progression. There's a throne. In heaven, you're going to see the 24 elders, the four living creatures, and they're singing, "Worthy, you're worthy to receive glory and honor and power. But they're not going to say to you, O Lord, the creator. They're going to say to the lamb who is worthy. That's going to be the one thing that's, that's changed. But then they also were going to fall down and they're going to worship him. And you'll see that some other things stand out as quite different too. But this is sort of like two panels displaying the same thing. The throne of God and now the lamb. And what is the lamb's role as far as it relates to God, the creator? That's going to be answered for us in Revelation 5. So here we go, Revelation 5. And then I saw at the right hand of him who, sit, who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Anticipation here. We want this scroll to be open. We want these seals to be broken. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then John turns, and I saw a lamb 
looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand, right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scrolls and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne of the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, and to the Lamb, be praised and honored, glory and power. To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, and to the Lamb, be praised and honored, glory and power. Glad we had that recording uh, when, when John saw this. Awesome. Revelation reveals what Revelation unveils, what John got to look through the screen and see. 
is that Jesus truly is king and God. He's the only one who is worthy to sit on the throne of the Almighty. He's the only one who's worthy to open the sealed scroll and unleash God's plan, which, by the way, as we'll see in coming chapters of Revelation, is God's justice. It's God's purification of the world. It's God's final dealing with sin and death and evil that has unleashed hell on earth. It's a good thing. When they couldn't open the seal, John wept. He said, oh, this is the, everybody is waiting in anticipation for God's justice to come, but it's sealed, and there's no one who can open this scroll. And it was this, just the, the most devastating moment. But then the good news is, oh, no, there is one, and it's this lamb, the Lion of Judah. Wait, but it's not a lion. It's one who didn't conquer. He wasn't the king of the jungle. He was crucified himself. Wow, that's, that's strange. That's surprising. But he is the one who is worthy. Do you remember when we study the Gospels, when you're, you're reading about the life of Jesus, you read through John, you read through Mark, there's kind of this gradual unfolding of who Jesus is. You see him, and, and he's this preacher, and he has some things to say. He's a teacher. People go, mm, yeah, he's got, some, he's got some things to say. I'll follow him a little bit farther. There's this question that keeps coming up, though, and that is, who is this man? And the more things he does, the more this question becomes pressing. Who is this man that can heal? Who is this man that can calm a stormy sea? Like, people don't do that. That's different. What, what makes him different? Who is this man that claims to be able to forgive sins? Only God can do that. It just kind of gradually unfolds as the story goes. Well, toward the end of Jesus' life and toward the end of each of the Gospels, you get Jesus arriving in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And you get an even bigger clue. Jesus enters the city riding on an unimpressive animal, and people start treating his arrival like they would the arrival of a king. They start praising him. They shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, Lord, come save us. They shout, blessed is the king of Israel. They start taking off their cloaks and throwing them on the road for him to ride across. They start taking the palm branches and waving them, which is something you would do when a king returns back to the city after a victory. And by the way, which is why we call the Sunday before Easter Palm Sunday, because the week before Jesus went to the cross, it was his entrance into Jerusalem. And what the Gospels tell us is pretty clear by this point. The people right under the noses of the power-obsessed Roman government are declaring not Caesar, but Jesus is Lord. And according to Revelation 5, heaven agrees with that assessment. The representatives of God's creation all agree with that. The angels gather and they agree with that. God's holy people, Israel, the apostles, the saints, they all agree with that. And God himself, the creator sitting on the throne, agrees. Jesus is Lord. And you are worthy of our praise because with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, and people and nation. And that's what we do as well. Today, as Christians, with our worship, with our remembering of Jesus, our prayers, our lives that bring him honor and shine his light, we agree with that as well. We go back to the idea of our screens in our world. And you think about the, the seven churches. They didn't have the same kind of screens that 
we did, but there were still plenty of messages that were sent to the people of the first century telling them what was true and what wasn't true in the world. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing a Roman temple or Roman military presence or Caesar's face on your coins and on statues. You would see crucified criminals lining the roads, reminding you who was the most powerful being in all of creation. And all the signs and all of these messages seem to point to the most obvious conclusion, that Rome was in charge, Rome was on the throne. But what John does here in Revelation is he gives these tired, these few and numbered Christians of the first century a glimpse into what is really going on. He shows them this is what really is true. And he reminds them what really had happened, what really is happening, and what really is going to happen. And that was that Christ had died, but Christ was risen, and that Christ will come again. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is on the throne. That's the message of Revelation. That is the core foundation foundational centerpiece of understanding this. I said this before. If you want to know what Revelation is about, it's about Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, who was on the throne, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Man, that's why I'm excited. We're going to be in Revelation 6 and 7 for Easter, and it's going to be fantastic. Um, Maybe you can see why this retired minister thought that Revelation 4 and 5 were the best two chapters in all of scripture. They're so worshipful. It's this image that gives us hope. Uh, It's fantastic. And I think that in a world with so many people vying for power and fame and personal glory and worship and honor, we are invited along with John and the seven churches and all of heaven and earth to declare with our voices and with our lives that we will have no other gods before you. That nothing on earth will compete for your throne. Because you are the sovereign I am and you reign in our hearts alone. So we will exalt you on high forever. The King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. We declare together with all of the Christians around the world, throughout history, we will have no other gods before you. We place Jesus in the center, on the throne. And I want to invite you guys to stand with me, and we're going to make this declaration with our final song.